0: Dear, glorious Father in heaven, Lord, once again, we thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for this beautiful church, this opportunity to gather before you the liberty and the freedom you've given us to do so. And Lord, we thank you for this Bible, these truths. God breathed, God inspired, God led. And Lord, now as we open your Bible, we ask you to please send your Holy Spirit to bless our studies, to open our hearts and minds Help us to understand your character. Draw us unto your truth so that we will not be deceived here at the end of time. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. A man once boarded a plane in Los Angeles. And he was flying home to Oakland in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, if you're familiar with California, it's not a very long flight, is it? He settled in for the short flight as the plane took off over the Pacific Ocean. After an hour or so, he started to wonder, why are we still flying? Oakland is north of Los Angeles, and after two hours of flying, he finally spoke to a flight attendant. He says, Miss, how long before we get to Oakland? She looked at her watch, and she said, oh, it's going to be about another 11 hours. He said, 11 hours? And she said, Oakland? He said, yes, man, I'm going to Oakland, California. When do we get to Oakland? She said, this plane isn't going to Oakland. It's going to Auckland, New Zealand. He was on the wrong plane, and he was traveling in the wrong direction. And then when he got to New Zealand, he had to get on another plane as soon as he could. Well, my friends, we laugh about that. But as Christians, we sometimes find ourselves in that same situation, don't we? Our plan might be to go to Oakland, but it's possible that we discover we're not really where we want to be. We're in Auckland instead of Oakland. It might be nice there. I have no idea. I've never been to Auckland or Oakland. But as Christians, we get comfortable. As I said, it might be comfortable. We might have a lot of friends there. But if we're headed in the wrong direction, we really need to do something about it. Amen? Well, you see, in God's mercy, he sends a message of love to gently nudge us, to guide us, to turn us around so that his will will be done in our lives. He sees and knows our hearts. And he knows that sometimes even the most sincere person can need to adjust their direction. God guides us in his word so that we can be where he wants us to be, not necessarily where we want to be. An earlier situation happened earlier in the Bible, very similar, in the time of the prophet Elijah. This mighty man of God was taken out of this world and off to heaven in a chariot of fire. You see, Elijah's name means Jehovah is my God. And his name was a great encouragement to him in a time when Israel had been plunged into terrible apostasy. It's not that people had turned their backs on God altogether. But the Phoenician princess Jezebel had succeeded in bringing the worship of Baal into the worship of the true God. Remember we talked Sabbath about the mixture, right? The compromise. God's people had mixed together truth with error. And they were worshiping God and Baal. They were mixing it together. So God gave the prophet Elijah a message that he needed to take to the king. So Elijah told King Ahab, there's going to be a period where there won't be any rain, unlike today. It was a difficult time. And the next time Ahab saw Elijah, he was furious. And he said to Elijah, he said, is that you, troubler of Israel? He was blaming Elijah, wasn't he? Elijah, you control the weather. (laughs) What he was saying. Turn me to 1 Kings chapter 18, page 342. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And have followed the bales. Elijah says, "I haven't troubled Israel. It's you. You've troubled Israel." Well that didn't make the king very happy. So the king gathered the people together at the top of Mount Carmel, and there was going to be a showdown. One side was the prophet Elijah, the one faithful man of God. While on the other side were 850 false prophets, 450 of Baal, and 400 prophets of the groves. One man gets 850. My friends, truth is always in the minority. Remember my advice in an earlier message about being suspicious when the majority is going in one direction to look around. Don't just fall in with the crowd. Elijah continues, verse 21. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Elijah's saying, you need to decide what's right. Decide what's true. And then, follow that. You see, Elijah was telling them to pick a side. That's the theme of the great controversy. We've been talking about this in every message. God calling people to a decision. Calling people to choose their side. So when the showdown came, Elijah says, we'll both set up an altar. And we'll put wood on the altar and a sacrifice on the wood. And whosoever God answers their prayers by sending fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice... We'll know that their God is the true God. Elijah says, let's see, who is God? Verse 26, so they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning, even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. That's kind of a gruesome scene, isn't it? Even after all of that, no fire from heaven. Then it was Elijah's turn. Elijah soaked the altar and the wood and the sacrifice with water. So everyone would know that he couldn't have started the fire by trickery. So I'm gonna make it soaking wet. And then Elijah prayed to God, and before long a fireball came hurtling towards Mount Carmel from heaven. The altar, the wood, the stones, the sacrifice, all burned up, and God was revealed as the true God. Then Elijah prayed. And before long, it started to rain. Remember, they had been without rain. In that driving rain, Elijah ran before the chariot of the king and guided the king back to the palace in Jezreel. You see, Elijah was a forerunner of the true king. Then Elijah called the people to true worship, he called the people back to faithfulness to God. The Bible says that Elijah's work would be reenacted. Not once, but twice. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Page 931. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. The last prophecy in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the first time Elijah was here, he called the people to faithfulness to God, to fidelity to the law of God, back to the commandments of God. He called people to be faithful to God. And the Bible says that Elijah would return. The disciples actually came to Jesus one day, and they they asked him, what's this about this Elijah coming back? And Jesus essentially said, Elijah is here already. Who was he talking about? John the Baptist. We were talking about it earlier in the question. John the Baptist. Somebody said to John one day, are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said, no, I am not. Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah. But John the Baptist said, I'm not Elijah. When Jesus said, Elijah will come, he was definitely referring to John the Baptist. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that Elijah the man would come. It was Elijah's message that would be heard. It was Elijah's message. John the Baptist spoke of the king Herod and rebuked him for the way he was breaking God's law. And he called the people back to worship God in spirit and in truth. Remember, he said, Don't come down here to be baptized while your hearts are full of venom and malice. Bring forth fruits of repentance. He was telling people, You need to get your lives and your hearts right with God because he's coming. He's coming. See, John the Baptist called for spiritual revival. He called for people to repent. He called for them to seek God. He called for people to turn from their ways and embrace God. In earth's last days, John the Baptist's message, Elijah's message, will be heard again. Amen? There will be a falling away from God's word. Have we seen that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the question once again will be asked how long will you falter between two opinions? Between two sides? Remember, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow Baal. My friends, you can't have it both ways. Our lives will either go God's way or it will go Baal's way. You don't get to set in the middle, no neutral ground. The book of Revelation describes two systems of religion. It describes two ways of worship. The book of Revelation presents us with one of two choices. It doesn't leave us with any middle ground. As I said, there is no neutral ground. God says, you got to pick a side. And to not pick is to pick. So you don't get to say, well, I'm not, I'm not picking right now, Dan. God says, no, no. If you don't pick, you pick the enemy. Revelation chapter 12. The woman in white is described in Revelation chapter 12. Throughout the book of Revelation, remember, a pure woman symbolizes the bride of Jesus or the true church. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2, page 732. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The daughter of Zion is a term that describes God's people. And here, God compares his people to a beautiful, pure woman. Symbolism. In Ephesians chapter 5, he likens Jesus to a faithful husband and his church as the bride. The marriage symbolism used throughout Scripture describes Jesus and his church. The Lord uses that marriage symbolism throughout the New Testament to describe the church and Jesus' relationship to the church. In Revelation chapter 12, there's a striking symbol of a woman dressed in white. And we see a picture of her being faithful to her true lover, Jesus. She is undefiled with the corruption of false doctrines. She is described as Christ's bride, or his church on earth. In Revelation chapter 17, though, we see another woman who arises. This woman rides upon a scarlet-colored beast. The Bible calls her a harlot woman. You see, she has left her true lover, Jesus. This is an apostate system of religion. Tonight we're going to spend most of our time looking at this harlot woman in Revelation chapter 17. Yes, sir. It means to rebel against God. As you've seen in every study, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. Brother, if you want me to spend more time on that, put a quick question down for me. It's a good question. If the whole world follows fables and human dogmas, we need to stand on God's word. Amen? It's in the Bible. It's good enough. If it's not in the Bible, we don't want anything to do with it. Before we look at the apostate church, let's briefly look at the true church that we see in Revelation chapter 12. The New Testament church is radiant. radiant with the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ. Christ is predominant in her life, in this church's life. Her affections are fixed upon him. Her heart belongs to Jesus, and her love can be given to no other. She's true to the husband and that marriage symbolism. The New Testament church in Revelation chapter 12 is pictured as the faithful bride of Christ. But as we see in Revelation chapter 17, the picture changes. Another woman comes on the scene in stark contrast to the woman in Revelation 12. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17. Page 1185. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 17 verse 1 and 2 Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me Come I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication A lot of things going on there isn't there? A harlot is a woman who has left her true lover. And here is a picture not of the true church, but of a fallen church. She has walked away from her true lover, Jesus. The Bible says she sits on many waters. And remember, we've discussed this symbolism through many of the messages. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15 says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Remember this one? What does the water represent? Multitudes. People. This fallen church, this fallen church system, the harlot, has left her true lover. But we're we're shown that she dominates many people. Many peoples. The Bible goes on, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. What's fornication in the Bible? It's an illicit union. It's an illicit union. In the fallen church system, the church unites with the state instead of uniting with Jesus. It's an illicit union. In the true church system, the church is united with Jesus Christ. That's the pure church. The fallen church looks to the kings and the political leaders of the earth for power. This church says, we're going to get our power from secular sources, from man. Whenever the church leaves its true lover, Jesus, it has to get its power from a secular source. It looks for power from the kings of the earth or state authorities. The Bible says, and the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The fallen church, the woman, is dressed in purple and she sits upon a scarlet-covered beast. See, this fallen church gets its power from the state, but she also influences the state to support her falsehoods. It's a symbiotic relationship. She passes around her wine cup of false doctrine, shares it with the kings. The world becomes intoxicated with error. Millions drink of the wine of Babylon, and then they're deceived. The Bible describes it this way, back in Revelation chapter 17, this time in verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. You see, the harlot woman of Revelation 17 represents a false system of worship. A false system of religion. And this system of religion is in opposition to Jesus. In opposition to the true church. Now remember, in Bible prophecy, the beast represents something, doesn't it? What does a beast represent? A kingdom or a king. So this woman, a corrupt church that's behind the power of the state, derives power from the state, and then she influences the state. So she gets physical power, like military power, from the state. But then she exerts doctrinal power over the state. It's an illicit union. There is a marvelous Bible commentary by a group of Protestant scholars who write about Revelation chapter 17 and on page 593 of this commentary, the authors make a remarkable statement. The state and church are precious gifts of God. But the state being desecrated becomes beast-like. The church apostatizing becomes the harlot. That's amazing. The text goes on in Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Notice the colors that God uses to describe this fallen system of religion that appeals to the state purple and scarlet. Do you know of any religious system whose priests use purple and scarlet? We've been talking about it in a lot of messages. The Roman church. We continue having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. In other words, this hand of the fallen system, a religion, whose colors are purple and scarlet, there's a wine cup, and all the world drinks from it and becomes confused by false doctrines, by falsehood mixed with truth. The golden wine cup in her hand represents the intoxication of false doctrine. Now, what's the name on her forehead? Revelation 17, verse 5. And on her forehead, a name was written. Mystery, Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. The mother of harlots. Which means there's other harlots, right? Other fallen churches. But this one is the mother of all of them. These other harlots have come out of her. But they've retained some of her false doctrines. My friends, it's so plain in the Bible. God is calling people out of these churches who have been part of the great mother church. God is calling people that are part of the daughters of the mother church. And these daughters are the Protestant churches. Whoa, wait a minute, Dan. They protested. They broke away. They're not part of the mother church. But here we have God calling them from the ears that have slipped into the church through paganism. You see, my friends, God is calling his people to the truth of his word. All of his word. So who's this mother church? Pope Francis, I've already talked about this. I'm going to let the church speak for itself once again. Pope Francis has been quoted as saying, the Protestant Reformation is over. Protestants are no longer protesting anymore. <laughs> says, you guys aren't protesting anything anymore. What's he saying? You guys are following me. You just don't want to admit it. In March of 2014, Tony Palmer from the Anglican Church, quote, return to the mother church. He gave a rousing call, come back to the mother church. Return to mother Rome. Pope Francis again, June 2014, held a conference with a huge delegation of evangelical and charismatic leaders to discuss their return to the mother church. His words, not mine, Who knows what October 31st is? Halloween? Yeah, not in this context, it's not. It's Reformation Day. Remember, I've mentioned it in two other messages. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 30, 95 theses on that door at Wittenberg Castle. Remember, I mentioned it? Sabbath, I talked about it. And he launched the Protestant Reformation. Well, my friends, just three years ago, on that same day, there's a joint service was held between Catholics and Lutherans to commemorate the Reformation. The theme was from conflict to communion, together in hope. Sounds good, doesn't it? Conflict to communion. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's great, Dan. They're burying the hatchet. They're getting along now. Love is going to conquer all. Maybe they're going to work out their differences. But my friends, Rome has bragged throughout its existence, they never change. Their words, not mine. They never change. So according to the Pope himself, the papacy of the Dark Ages and the Counter-Reformation is the same as the papacy today. According to him, they never change. How about a local example? I travel a lot for my job, and I go to Jackson, Michigan a lot. Recently, I was down there, and I noticed a banner in the yard of the St. John Church, and they were welcoming a brand-new priest to the local parish. And under the welcome banner, it says, St. John the Evangelist Parish, the Mother Church of Jackson. Yeah, I had to go around and take a picture of that. Their are words. Go to their website. It says it there too. My friends, I believe tonight that you came here for a reason. You want something more than sweet words, something that makes you comfortable. I believe that you're longing in your heart for truth directly from the Bible. Am I right? Amen. Does your heart long for truth? You love truth. And if you love truth, you need to search for truth. Seek truth. So what does the Bible mean when it says mystery, Babylon the Great? Well, my friends, by the first century, literal Babylon, a city that existed in the Old Testament, had already perished. It was gone. So I guarantee you, that John the Revelator was not talking about literal Babylon. It was gone. It's talking about spiritual Babylon. It's talking about a religious system that would depart from the pure teachings of God's Word. It's talking about a departure from the Bible. It's talking about a departure from the faith of Scripture. False doctrines would come into the church through this false religious system called Babylon. In fact, notice that they would be sanctioned by the church. These systems are sanctioned by the church, not God. Turn to John chapter 17, page 1046. The Gospel of John, John 17, verse 17. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth, your word, is truth. What does the word sanctify mean? Sanctify. It means to set apart. Remember, God's people are described throughout the Bible as standing out. Remember, Sabbath morning, if you are here, I talked about a called out people standing apart from the world. So God says, I'm going to call my people from those false doctrines of Babylon, and I'm going to call them back to the truth of my word. I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them. I'm going to keep calling them. In the Old Testament, right after the flood, there was a group of men and women who rebelled against God. And they built a tower known as the Tower of Babel. of Babel. But God came down and did something. Turn to Genesis chapter 11, page 9. Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So as they're building this tower, as they're erecting it in defiance to God, they did not accept God's word. God had promised them that he would never again destroy the the world by flood. They didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. They substituted a man-made idea. My friends, every time man substitutes a counterfeit for God's word, it's because there's rebellion in their heart. God confused their languages. No longer could they understand one another, and the work stopped. They could communicate with each other to work. Later, the city of Babylon was built on the site of the Tower of Babel. So when you think of Babylon, think of confusion, it's where God confused their language. So in religion, when religion accepts man's ideas rather than God's ideas, it becomes confused. It's babbling man's ideas. It's babbling man's traditions. And so when a church babbles in confusion, it loses its power and it no longer has God behind it. But when a church clearly preaches God's truth, it's not babbling, it's proclaiming. My friends, there's a huge difference b- between proclaiming truth and babbling tradition. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, page 861. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. The king spoke, saying, is, is it not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling? but By my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? He's, he's regaling in his own creation, isn't he? My friend? spiritual Babylon represents a man-made system of religion based on man's teachings, established on man's ideas, man's doctrines. There is a form of man-made religion that is built by brilliant human religious leaders, but it stands in opposition to the power of the gospel and the church that Jesus built. My friends, they sound, it sounds good. It sounds powerful. But it's in opposition of God. Jesus himself, while he was on this earth, spoke this prophecy about his church for all time. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, page 951. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The Bible describes two systems of religion. One man-made and one God-made. God-made church. This system of religion that God established has a solid foundation. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. It is built on true doctrine. It is built on the gospel of Christ. Babylon, first, is a man-made system of religion. False doctrines built upon the words and traditions of man, not God. My friends, Jesus is calling us from all human systems of religion. He's calling us out. He's calling us out of these false doctrines. He's calling us back to the Bible. He's calling us back to loyalty. He's calling us back to faithfulness in his word. The church of Jesus Christ is not a man-made institution. The church of Jesus Christ was built by Jesus himself, amen? Turn to Colossians chapter one, page 1132. Colossians chapter one, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. My friends, the true church only has one number one in it. Jesus Christ is number one in the true church. Jesus has preeminence. Jesus Christ is the only head of the true church. In fact, somebody put it this way once, the true church of God is the only organization so big that its body is upon earth, but its head is in heaven. My friends, the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the head of the church is in heaven, not on earth. What about that mystery, though? That mystery, Babylon the Great. Where's her head? What about this woman that rides upon the scarlet-covered beast? What about this earthly Babylon system? Earthly Babylon in the Old Testament had an earthly head that also was preeminent. In fact, the word of those Babylonian kings was law. When King Nebuchadnezzar sat in his temple on his royal throne, he spoke as God in his kingdom. His commands were supposedly the voice of God. At least he claimed they were. Once again, in the last days, a church state system would arise called spiritual Babylon that would have a spiritual leader claiming to speak as God there would be one whose word would be declared to be the very word of God. Spiritual Babylon would have a leader who claimed that his word had the authority, had the power when speaking from his throne of the very God of heaven. So the first identifying feature of spiritual Babylon is that it has an earthly head who speaks as God and in place of God. But there's a second thing about this Babylonian system of religion. See, Babylon was the center of image worship throughout all of the Old Testament. It's rife with idolatry. We can never really understand the impact of Revelation chapter 17 and the words mystery, Babylon the Great, unless we understand Old Testament Babylon. As I said, Babylon was the center of image worship. Christ invites us to come directly to him. He is our intercessor. He is our priest. In fact, he tells us we can't come to him through priests. We can't come to him through saints or other intercessors. He says, I am the only intercessor. I am the only mediator. I am your priest. His words. The beautiful teaching of the New Testament is that grace is free. The beautiful teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, invites us to worship Him and Him alone. Turn me to Exodus chapter 20, page 70. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Let me summarize this for you. Jesus says, do not use images in worship service. Jesus says, do not erect images. He says, worship me in your heart. In your heart. In fact, he says, you don't need images to pray to me. They won't work. Pray to me in your heart. But Babylon used images prolifically in their worship service. In fact, many of these images found their way from paganism into the Roman church. And then into the Christian church. In fact, many of those images are called sacred today. These are the images that church fathers and church leaders today call holy. What did Jesus say? Don't do it. The Bible says there's only one true mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, it says there is no salvation in any other. Millions of Christians, revere these so-called images as objects of worship. My friends, this is one of Satan's deceptions that he uses to cloud the minds from the truth of God's word. He uses it to deceive us, to distract us. There's a third characteristic of Babylon. Center of false teachings about death. We did a subject on death, didn't we? And I had several questions about that. Babylon was the center of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. This idea that the dead can live on, this idea that when you die, an immortal soul continues eternally, my friends, that did not come from Christianity, it does not come from the Bible. This is one of the most incredible texts in the Bible on this very subject. Ezekiel, chapter 8, page 807. Turn to Ezekiel, chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. Ezekiel, chapter 8. And he said to me, Turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. So who's this Tammuz? Tammuz is the god of vegetation. You see, the Babylonians believed that when winter darkened the sky and there were long nights, Tammuz had died. But in the spring, there would be a resurrection. You say, Dan, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is is that some of God's people, the Jews, actually accepted this false idea from Babylon straight out of paganism. That's why Ezekiel describes them as worshiping Tammuz. They're worshiping the dead. This false idea that the dead live on and the soul is immortal slipped into the Old Testament church directly from paganism. Here's what the Bible says about the truth of death. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, page 644. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. We read this verse earlier in the series. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. The living know that they shall die, but the dead don't know anything. Because they're sleeping. My friends, that's Bible teaching. That's what the Bible says about death. You say, well, Dan, that's, that's a, a much later thing that slept, slipped into the church. Really? What did he, Satan say to Eve in the garden? You shall not surely die. He said, Eve, you're immortal. You won't die. That idea of immortality of the soul, of worshiping the dead, of bowing before images, supposedly representing the dead, that idea of immortality of the soul gave way to pagan doctrine, gave way to the bringing of offerings for the dead. It gave way to the Christian doctrine of saints that are supposed to be hovering around You see, that idea of the immortality of the soul takes away the power of the second coming of Christ. Only Christ can revive the dead, but this doctrine robs Christ. It eats at the very heart of the church. It undermines Bible doctrine. If you believe in the immortality of the soul, if you believe that when you die you will immediately go to heaven, why then would Jesus come to resurrect the dead if he was already in heaven? Save the trip. My friends, this teaching undercuts the most glorious promise in the entire Bible, the second coming of Christ. It was God's intent that the church in every age would long for the second coming of Christ. Would yearn for it. According to the Bible, our loved ones rest in Jesus until the second coming. Together with them, we will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Amen? So why is it today that so many churches are spiritually dead? Why is it today that many churches lack spiritual power? It's because they've lost the urgency of the second coming of Christ. It's because they've lost the burning passion for Christ to return. My friends, I thank God that the Bible teaches truth. Amen? I thank God that the Bible leads us to have that sense that Jesus is coming and he's coming very soon. Our hearts can beat with eager anticipation that our dead loved ones who are sleeping, who are resting, will be resurrected to meet Jesus in the sky. Babylon was also the center of sun worship. You see, all sun worship came through varying pagan channels. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8 again. Page 807. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar. Where's he at? Between the porch. the altar. The Jews had accepted the Babylonian idea that the soul was immortal, so they're over there praying to Tammuz. But they're doing something else. They're doing something else in the inner court of the Lord's house. They're doing something else. What's going on? Ezekiel continues, there were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping What? The sun in the temple of God, worshiping the sun to the east. My friends, they had come to the Lord's house. They came to the Jewish temple. They came to worship God. But you see, when they came into the temple, they turned their backs on God to face the sun. They turned around to face the sun. In true worship, they were to turn their backs on the sun and face God. They were facing the sunrise towards the east. They were worshiping the sun. Paganism. Sun worship crept into the church. And then Babylonian practices, their worship practices start to unite with Judaism. Judaism. Then the worship of the sun comes into the church. Worship of nature by James G. Fraser, page 529. In ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. The sun was worshipped. The sun was part of their worship system. They were worshipping the creation, not the creator. My friends, it was very clear what happened in the early Christian church. The Two Babylonians, page 105, Alexander Hislop, To conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. That means put together, blended. And to get paganism and Christianity, now far-sunken idolatry, in this and so many other things, to shake hands. Get paganism and Christianity to come together, to join. Christianity and paganism shook hands. How did they do that? Sunday. Sunday worship became a vehicle to unite unite paganism and Christianity. Does it start to make sense now what's going on in Revelation chapter 17? Revelation chapter 17 tells us that many false doctrines were going to come into the church. The great mother church had drifted away from truth of Scripture The only one who can speak powerfully without mistake is Jesus Christ. A church based on the idea of human merit for salvation. A church based on the idea of images in worship. A church based on the idea of the soul being immortal. A church based on the idea of Sunday worship is part of a culture that the Bible refers to as Babylon. Babylon. Now, my friends, I'm going to show you one of the most incredible, amazing statements I've ever read by a Baptist author. Those of you that are Baptists will be interested in this. It says, the author of the Baptist manual was Dr. Edward T. Hiscox. And he makes this statement in 1893 to hundreds of Baptist ministers. And he's explaining to them how Sunday worship come into their church. Quote, what a pity that it comes, and he's talking about Sunday, branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. Well, my friends, this is a statement by the author of the Baptist manual. He says it's a pity that Sunday has come through the muddy waters of paganism. And then came through Catholicism. And then Protestants accepted it. He said, it's a pity. My friends, I agree. It's more than a pity. Ezekiel the prophet would also say, what a pity. Because God gave us the Sabbath as a sign. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Verse 19, or I'm sorry, verse 12. Page 819. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Teachings from ancient Babylon would slip in to this growing mother church. Protestant churches would leave this larger mother church. God would raise up great men, but unfortunately, they would retain errors from the mother church, like the immortality of the soul. They would retain errors like Sunday worship. Now somebody might ask, Dan, are those people all lost? My friends, no, they're not lost. By grace, They are saved through Jesus Christ, amen? Many of them love Jesus. But my friends, today we're living in the last days. Truth is truth, and it must be followed. God is unfolding the prophecies of Revelations, and he's unfolding it to Baptists and to Catholics and to Methodists and Episcopalians and Lutherans, Pentecostals, who love Jesus and who love truth. They are learning new things every day from the Word of God. And as they learn these new things, they say, this is truth. There's something in my heart that responds, this is truth. These are things I've been wondering about. These are things that have troubled my mind. They think to themselves, this is a time to move for God. You see, in the days of Ezekiel... When error slipped in amongst the people of God, he cried out. Ezekiel 22, verse 26, says, Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy. Notice the Lord is saying that priests in what they call God's church have violated his law. God says, priests have come into my church and they violated my law. Continues, nor have they made known the difference between the clean and the unclean, and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath, so that I am profaned among them. My friends, I believe with all my heart that the prophet Ezekiel would cry out today. He would cry out that many religious leaders have hidden their eyes from God's truth. I believe the apostle John would cry out today, and he would tell us to flee from the errors that have become part of the fallen church system called Spiritual Babylon. My friends, God is leading people today back to his word. God is leading us back to his truth. God is leading honest-hearted men and women by the thousands. There will be a power. According to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we've seen it in multiple nights, There will be a power that thinks to change times and laws. Thinks to change times and laws. This power would think that it has its own power to change the Bible, to change the commandments of God. But my friends, I love what the Protestant writer George Eliot said in his book, The Abiding Sabbath. On page 123, he was commenting on Daniel chapter seven and he was discussing man's attempt to change God's laws. He says, why, what is proposed to make an erasure in the heaven-born code? Is the eternal tablet of the law to be defaced by a creature's hand? It's a good question, isn't it? He says, is the eternal tablet of God's law where it says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. He's saying, is that to be defaced by Man. Is that to be scratched out, thrown away? He's asking, is the eternal table of God's law that says, remember the Sabbath to be defaced by the creature's hand. The very commandment that does what? It's a memorial to the creation. And here the created is destroying it, or trying to. Elliot continues. He who proposes such an act should fortify himself by reasons as holy as God and as mighty as his power. You see, Eliot is warning those who would consider such a change that they best be as holy as God. Which, of course, the Bible is clear that no man or man-made institute ever is. God is God. Man is never God. Ladies and gentlemen, I say unto you that no earthly church has the authority to change any of God's law or to change God's word. I say tonight to you that preachers need to get back to preaching the Bible. They need to get back to preaching God's word. They need to preach God's truth. And they need to flee the harlot woman. I believe that God is calling us back today to preach God's word. I believe that God is calling us to truth. I believe that Jesus Christ is calling us to truth. My friends, our Lord Jesus is gathering a group of people who believe that Christ is number one in their lives. A group of people who believe that you can come directly to Jesus And you don't have to go through images. You don't have to go through man. You don't have to pay your way in. A group of people whose hearts long for the Christ who came once and who is going to come a second time to take us home. This group of believers cannot accept the unbiblical idea of the immortal soul. My friends, Christ's bride will worship him as the creator of heaven and earth. The bride of Christ calls his people back to the true Sabbath. The woman in scarlet and purple, the woman who's riding on that scarlet-covered beast, has passed around her wine cup, and the world is drunk with her false doctrines. And churches have accepted those doctrines. But my friends, God is giving us a call. He's calling us. Turn to Revelation chapter 18, page 1186. Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. Revelation chapter 18, verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. What does the Bible say? Where are many of God's people? They're in Babylon. Many of God's people are in churches that don't understand the truths. Most of God's people, loving Christians of every religious persuasion, are in churches that God calls Babylon. So, what does God say to those people? He says, come out, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. Who remembers what sin is? What is it? Transgression of God's law. It's the breaking of God's law. God says, my people, I love you, but you're drinking of the wine of Babylon. (laughs) My people, you are confused because you're intoxicated with the wine of Babylon. You've entered into an illicit relationship with a harlot. But he says, my people, my truth can sober you up. My truth can convict your hearts. Look at this commentary from Jameson, Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Page 593. In every apostate or world-conforming church, there are some of God's invisible and true church who, if they would be safe, must must come out. Now, my friends, I'm not talking about spiritual superiority at all. Because tonight, God says to many of those people in Babylon, come out of her. Come out of her, my people. My people. God says, my people, which means... His people are in those churches, amen? He says, these are my people. God knows that he's got honest, searching, heaven-bound people that are in Babylon. They might be getting taught wrong. They might be believing wrong about something. But they love God with all their heart. And God says, I see you. You are mine. And the time has come where God says, come out. Don't stay there. You're in danger. Now, my friends, there's some people who have the idea that God wants them to stay where they are and to change everybody else's mind. So then they can all come out together. How many have heard that? Come on. Now, that might sound really good in theory, but, my friends, it doesn't work in practice. Even Jesus couldn't change his church. Think about that. Jesus couldn't change his church. What's clear is that the foundation of Babylon is tradition of men. At the same time, though, the foundation of truth is the word of God. Maybe you didn't know the seventh day was the Sabbath. Maybe you didn't know that the dead were sleeping. Maybe you didn't know that your body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. But my friends, God in his mercy, like with Saul on that road to Damascus, has opened your eyes. The scales fell off and he could see. Maybe you didn't know before, but now you can see. My friends, God wants to lead us. He's chosen us. He's chosen us to be part of his people. He's chosen us to be sealed with the seal of God. See, God says, come out of her and let me bless you and lead you. Now, I'm not saying that God wasn't leading you before. Surely he was leading you. And you know he was leading you because he's leading you now. You didn't go to elementary school and stay there until you were 19 years old, did you? No, you graduated, and then you went to middle school, and then you went to high school. You might have gone to college. Many people go on to postgraduate studies. You continue to grow. You continue to advance because education never ends. My friends, it's the same in the Bible. Your growth in Jesus doesn't end. And God says to you, I have a plan for you. And it involves you coming out of Babylon. He says, Don't receive her plagues. Don't receive the mark of the beast. Stop breaking my law. My friends, that's God's message to all of us tonight. The messages come out of her, my people. It's Elijah's message for the last days. That decision to follow Christ, the decision to base your life on the Bible is the best decision you can ever make. Now, friends, it comes with a challenge. But in that challenge, God will make a way for you. Jesus called Peter to step out, and he enabled him to walk on water. Moses followed God, and as he did so, the Red Sea opened up before him. My friends, when God calls you, he will enable you. Now people are going to say, Dan, are you sure? Don't be too hasty. Don't rush your decision. My friends, maybe you're in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s. You're calling that a rush decision? You took all of your life... That wasn't a rushed decision. It was a slow decision. Amen. That's why the Bible says the long suffering of God is salvation. Maybe you're 70 years old or 80 years old and you're thinking about baptism. But I can't rush it right now, I got to make sure it's right. My friends, no matter how you went about it, it may have been slow, but better late than never, amen? My friends, many years ago, God called somebody out. He said, you and your family, get out of there. Go in that direction and don't turn back. But Mrs. Lot left her heart back there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they crept out of the city, she turned back. A pillar of salt testified that when God calls you out, you had better get out. When God calls you to go forward, you had better go forward. As a Christian, are you in Auckland? Are you in Oakland? This isn't a time to be saying, but Lord, the people are friendlier. The churches are bigger. I like the band. The food is really good. Yeah, you laugh. I prefer their basketball team. My friends, we have a chance to be like Abraham, who chose to follow God. But I want you to think about the power of that and the impact of that. Because of our example, somebody else is going to say, hang on a minute. Let me stop and think. Because of our example, somebody might say, that brother or sister is serious about truth. That brother or sister is serious about faith. That sister's life has changed. Clearly the Lord has gotten a hold of her. You may not even speak to a certain individual, but they're going to know because they heard and they saw the change in you. So they're watching you. My friends, that's a witness and it's powerful. As I said, where are you? Are you in Auckland? Are you in Oakland? Wherever you are, are you where God wants you to be? My friends, Elijah's message on the top of the mountain was How long are you going to falter between this way and that way? My friends, I want you to think about this. If you believe God is God, let's let him be God. Let's just settle it. If you believe there's a God in heaven, let's let him be what he wants to be in our lives. It's that simple. If he's real, you can't afford to be anywhere else but in Christ. You see, that's where he wants you to be. You can have the courage to say, Lord, come into my life. Lord, let your will be done. And you will experience the blessings of God like never before. In Revelation 18, verse 4 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. He says this with tones of mercy, with tones of love. He says, come out. You say, I'm looking for truth. I'm a truth seeker. I haven't been satisfied. Something deep inside of me is longing for truth, Dan. Or maybe you once thought, well, I walked with God's people, but I've kind of drifted away. But you know, since I drifted away, I've never really been happy. There's an emptiness inside. I've been longing for something, something of substance, something I can grab onto. Maybe things have come together in this lecture series. My friends, I believe God has brought you here. I believe that God looked down upon you. God has brought you here. God is calling you. And in those tones of tenderness and love, Jesus is saying, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. My friends, please stand with me. Please, bow your heads right where you are. Make this a special moment between God. Say, God, I have that sense that you brought me here. And Lord, I want to commit myself to follow you all the way. My friends, I beg you to make that commitment to the Lord tonight as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for your love and mercy. Forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we thank you for raising up a true church, a church that follows Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, we thank you for revealing the truth to us tonight of the falsehood that's crept into the church. You've opened our eyes, you've removed the scales, you've shown us what falsehood truly is. But now, Lord, you've called us to decision, you've called us to pick a side. You've sent us Elijah's message. And Lord, we just ask you to continue to speak to our hearts, to continue to contend with us, to draw us unto you. Lord, we yearn for your salvation. We yearn for your rescue. And Lord, I ask you, please, to send your Holy Spirit to these dear souls that came to these meetings searching for you. And Lord, it is my deepest prayer that they have found your truth in your words and they've found your character. Lord, I ask you to please continue to speak to their hearts. Wrap your loving arms around them and their families. Help them to weigh these truths, to consider your words, most of all, to choose your way and your will. Lord, I ask you please to keep these dear souls safe, protect them as they travel, bring them back to continue to study your word and study your character. Help us to be like you in this world and to be witnesses under your truth. Lord, we ask this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.